Welcome to Parent to Parent, real life tips to raise resilient kids. A podcast from Communities That Care of Greater Downingtown. This is Chrissy Jambowski, and I have two young kids. And I'm Beth Ann Sinelli, and I have two adult kids. Together, we'll meet with experts and fellow parents to share personal stories and provide support and actionable steps to strengthen your family and raise healthy kids. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to Parent to Parent. This is Beth Ann. And this is Chrissy. And today we are back talking about PAYS. So PAYS is the Pennsylvania Youth Survey. And this time we're really focusing all of our chatting and discussion on mental health. So we are here again today with Sarah Brooks from Downingtown Area School District. And also joining us today is Brian McGinley. He is a licensed social worker and school counselor at the Chester County Intermediate Unit. So Sarah and Brian, welcome. Thank you for joining us on our, our panel discussion about PAYS today. Thanks, Chris. Sure. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I think the first uh, question that we have, Brian, is really to you as our newest panel member. We've had a previous conversation, as Chrissy mentioned, part one of the PAYS data, and Sarah was part of that conversation, and we were looking specifically at substance use trends and information from PACE. Um, so I'm wondering, Brian, if you could share a little bit with us about yourself and what it is you are overseeing with the Chester County Intermediate Unit. Sure, sure, thanks. I'm My role is as a training and consultation staff. So that basically means that I get to travel the county uh, and sometimes parts other parts of the state to provide uh, opportunities for training to educators around the county, um, all elementary, middle school, high school level. Uh, so to educators, to students, to parents. Um, so I get to do that, you know, every day, which is really, which is really enjoyable. And uh, mostly I focus on the mental health needs of students and also some uh, drug and alcohol issues. So um, I worked extensively before coming into education now, uh, several decades ago, actually, I worked extensively in the mental health uh, field and the drug and alcohol field. And you know what, we're going to talk to later on about the link between substance use and mental health. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that mm -hmm. and how those two things are so linked up. So our setup today is more of a panel discussion again, and we are going to share stats from the PAYS data pertaining specifically to mental health. And we're also going to share in the second half. Um, so what do we do with this information? So things that parents can do at home with their kids and also resources that they can access and tips on building resiliency. Um, so to start, most of these points we're going to cover do go along with what we're seeing at national levels and national trends in the U.S. among teens, but it's still nice to see what's happening um, at the local level with our youth. So first up, we wanted to share this trend and maybe talk about things that might be contributing to it. So when we looked at the PACE data under the mental health section, kids, this is what kids reported to us. And I'll link all of this up in the show notes too with the handouts that you can see a visual to go over it as well. But when students were asked if they felt sad or depressed most days in the past 12 months, 23% of sixth graders reported feeling this way. And then that increased a little bit in eighth and 10th grade and topped out at 44% in 12th grade. Um, so this is a trend that's about the same as it was in 2019. Um, and the other question to share that we wanted to talk about first was 
at times I think I am no good at all. So when students were asked this, if they felt this way, um, this too starts lower in sixth grade at about 26% and then increases a little each year ending at 47%. So it's about, you know, just under half of seniors were reporting feeling this way. Um, so these feelings overall themes of kids reporting having low self-worth, um, and sadness or depression, you know, they start at a lower level in grade six, and then they do seem to increase as kids get older and move through their grades. So can we just talk about, you know, what's happening here and maybe what might be the things that lead to this situation? Yeah. And I think, um, I think there's probably not one answer or one thing to be able to sort of clearly point the finger to, unfortunately. I know that's frustrating for us as a community. Um, but when I think about it in terms of age and maturity and development and sort of kids' vocabulary at, eight, at grade six versus grade 12, you know, there are some different things that may or may not contribute to what students are reporting. And, and some of that I do think probably has to do with you know, some of the pressures that they might be experiencing in 12th grade versus sixth grade. Hopefully students have greater vocabulary and emotional insight and awareness by the time they're seniors versus when they're in our sixth grade center. And so I think some of those pieces probably contribute to the increased reporting. Um, and obviously there's also other aspects in terms of when I think of our senior year, you know, this is also a time when our kids are, are really sort of experiencing some of the pressures that coincide with pending graduation, um, facing sort of that next step of independence, post-secondary transition planning, looking at college or other career opportunities. There's a lot of things that are going on during that year, which could potentially contribute to why students are reporting some of the things that they're saying. Um, I do also think it's important to remember, and, and as we've talked through numerous channels about parents continuing to have really difficult conversations with their kids, the piece that I'm cognizant of as we look at some of these data points is the fact that this really reinforces in my mind as your seniors are really trying to be independent and autonomous and make decisions and handle things on their own, this is also very clearly a time when we really need to be continuing as parents and trusted adults to push into some of those conversations and check in with how are you feeling. And yes, I know that maybe the college process is stressful and overwhelming, or maybe I do know that your classes aren't going quite the way that you were hoping they would, or maybe I know that there's a lot of stress in your social circle and that's contributing to how you're feeling. Um, I think it's really imperative that we as adults and parents are continuing to push into those conversations um, because clearly there's a need and our kids are reporting that they may or may not be struggling emotionally. So I think those are some of my preliminary thoughts. Um, I don't know if Brian wants to add any insight from his experience. Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you said. First of all, I do think it's it's complicated. It's a systemic problem. It's not just one thing. Uh, I think the low hanging fruit uh, is to blame the pandemic uh, in recent years. <clears throat> but really what the pandemic did was it kind of piled on or exacerbated an issue that we were very concerned about prior to the pandemic. Like if we yeah. think back and there was a time before the pandemic, um, if we think back to that time, we were concerned about the mental health of of our youth then, yeah. right? We were concerned about the mental health of our kids and we were concerned about the opioid crisis. They were the two things that were really on the on the radar. And then the pandemic happened and it 
obviously took a back seat for a while. And so I think it's exacerbated uh, what was already a systemic problem. So, like I said, it's, it's not just one thing. And, you know, generally speaking, researchers point to the usual suspects. Um, and I like how Sarah got really specific developmentally with what, you know, 11th and 12th graders might be going through as well as elementary level kids like Digital media is still a usual suspect, right? Uh, bullying is still the usual suspect. And we see a, the height of bullying in sixth grade. Um, so we see a lack of good mental health services. Mm-hmm. And we also see maybe to some extent, and Chrissy, you had mentioned the news. And, you know, sometimes a, a parental tip is like, hey, don't watch so much news because hmm. we're human, right? And so we can be dysregulate it too uh, with everything that's happening in the world and and parents have tried to absorb uh you know and, and then oftentimes protect their kids from a lot of what's happening uh just societally and so that can lead to dysregulated parents mm-hmm. and a dysregulated parent has a really tough time um regulating helping to teach co-regulation skills to a sixth grader or even a high school student mm-hmm. And in going around the county over the last couple of years, one of one of the things that gets said to me pretty often is I see more need to help juniors and seniors in high school Mm self-regulate, that they don't quite have the self-regulation skills that maybe students 10 years ago had when it when it comes to uh, being able to talk themselves down and become more calm and problem solving, things like that. So. You know, distracted parents can can be part of that and dysregulated parents. Um, and, and certainly without, you know, looking at any blame, um, if parenting, you know, I always think that if parenting isn't part of the problem and who knows from family to family if it is or it isn't, um, we don't know that all the time. But we do know one thing. And, and that one thing is it good parenting is going to be part of the solution to whatever the problem is. So, um I think that there are, like Sarah said, there are multi-causal factors involved. That's a really good point that you brought up. And I, I and and we actually we did an episode a couple weeks back, and I can link it to the show notes um, because it was with uh, Dr. Lou uh, Bevilacqua from mm-hmm. Sonari today, and it was all about emotional mm-hmm. regulation. And a big piece of that of what we talked about was how you need parents and adults need to take care of themselves first before they're even able to take care of their kids be so that you're able to share your own regulation and role model. How do I handle stress and healthy coping and those types of things? Absolutely. I think the other thing that comes to mind and sorry, Bethann, not to, (laughs) um, but I also think about sort of what has become common language in our society Mm. And also the fact that I, I feel like, and I had a conversation earlier today, actually, in one of our buildings with an administrator about this, and the fact that um, a lot of times I think our, our teenagers in particular, to be truthful, they use certain words because they've been become common vernacular in terms of like, I'm so stressed, I'm mm. so anxious, I'm so depressed. Um, and, and that's not to take away from their feelings. They may very well be feeling that way but I think we probably still need to build more capacity in terms of instructing students and youth in general. Like, what do those words actually mean? Yes. And there are elements of stress and there are elements of anxiety that are, are part of life. 
-hmm. Some of those emotions in certain instances can actually be really helpful and motivating, but but you do still have to be able to regulate them. And, And the same thing with other things in terms of depression and other moods, like I think we, we have to get to a place where kids kind of understand the words they're saying and the meaning behind those words and that there's a difference between feeling like when does something become a problem? And I, and I think we talk about that often. And I think that's what we often hear from our parents as well as like, well, how do I know or when, when do I know that it's become a problem? Um, and I think, you know, there are certainly some very clinical indicators mm-hmm. and answers to that question. Um, but, you know, those are obviously conversations that are hopefully happening with professionals. Hey, so Sarah, both you and Brian, um, before we even go into this next question, brought up some, a couple things. The one thing when you were talking about students um, and communicating and what do these words really mean and their, uh, their ease, but I think there's, so there's, I think, Positive and negatives, right? Like I think, and this is, I'm kind of curious because you're in this every day, this experience, are kids more comfortable? Like I think back to my kids as older um, in their late twenties now. And one of the things that I observed with them was this comfort level with kids being comfortable about discussing their medications they may be on, the problems they're experiencing, the, you know, the treatment, the the steps they're taking, like it just felt, which I felt, was a positive in that they're not hiding. There's a comfort level. Uh, there's more sharing about what they're experiencing around mental health. But then also, Sarah, to your point, is that with all of this sharing and all of this comfort, is there perhaps some sort of an unintended consequence to that? Or is it something where there's confusion then because they're, they're using language that maybe um, has a meaning to them? but has a different meaning to an adult or a different meaning to a professional that's working with students. So I just wanted to kind of, and, and Chrissy set this up by saying that the numbers and the experiences that are being reported in the Downingtown Area School District is not just owned by the Downingtown Area School District. This is something we're seeing across the county, as Brian said. We're hearing about it all the time on the news reporting mental health and adolescents and young adults. So I, I just want to know from your experiences, um, are you seeing sort of this trend where students' comfort level and communication is more willing and forthcoming? And does that also present a little bit of a challenge at the ease at which they're posting this information, talking about this information, sharing it openly with parents or with you as professionals? There's a lot there. I'm just kind of curious about what you see with that. It's funny, and then, unless, did I cut you off, Brian? No, go ahead. (laughs) We'll ping pong back and forth. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I was going to say, as you're saying that, the one thing that really comes to my mind, actually, is an event that we did at Downingtown West probably sometime last year. My calendar is a blur, but regardless, it was all around mental health, and it includes both professionals as well as students who actually spoke. Um, and what really stuck out in my mind, actually, was a student in one of our buildings who was, you know, kind and brave enough to, to agree to participate in this event, like, was very forthcoming and basically was like, we talk about our mental health all the time. Yes, that's what I was thinking back. That was last December program. Yes, I remember that. And I was like, oh, it's just like talking about, you know, the weather in a way. Yeah. Yeah, which on one hand is great in terms of yeah. I think our long-time goal has been to reduce stigma and shame. Like these are conversations we need to be having. <laughs> yes. 
So, I mean, I, I do think that there is probably a little bit of greater comfort in, in sharing some of that information at this point in time. But then, you know, obviously we still have a responsibility. And I think with that, we also try and really echo to students, you can't carry everybody else's yes. stuff. Like, yes. there comes a point where you need to ask for help and let other people probably older or professional mm-hmm. assist in that process. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I agree, sir. I think, you know, we've, for years, we've uh, worked to reduce stigma and have these conversations. And now that they're happening more often, and some people would say, well, that's one of the reasons that we're seeing, right. you know, more, more mental health problems because it, it's being reported more, it's being talked about more. And that may be, that's probably partially true too. Uh, so, you know, we've worked to reduce stigma. I think that the challenge, uh, with that is figuring out, like you said, Bethan, figuring out what that student means when they say, I'm really, really anxious, uh, because their concept of really, really anxious may be much different than a parent or an adult or a teacher or, or yeah. you know, a clinician. And so to tease that out, to, to figure that out, uh, takes some more conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think that we've partially gotten a little bit away from allowing students to to sit with some of those, like Sarah was saying, and and even you know to struggle with some of it. Uh, that's counterintuitive to a lot of um, you know our approaches with uh, you know helping kids. Uh, you know we yeah. tend, to, and we'll talk about this a little bit with the seven C's, but you know it's okay to to struggle not to a dangerous level but that's fine that's life on mm-hmm. life's terms mm-hmm. and to go in and sort of you know rescue or or support unneedlessly is is um you know it's not helpful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that kind of i think takes me to this this next question we already talked a little bit about this so when we think about students communicating um mental health concerns or problems um, we also take this then to how do they how do they address this and what do they do? And I think that one of the things that concerns us is this link between the mental health piece and substances. And some of the data that's in the PAYS report does link that um, that behavior or that co-occurring um, behavior. And what concerns us is the students who um, maybe looking for ways to address the problem, whether it's it's anxiety or depression that they're experiencing or stress, how they cope may not necessarily always be in a positive way, whether it's communicating or seeking out, talking to a trusted adult or to a parent that perhaps it might turn to some kind of self-medicating, which also may be in the, in with vaping, marijuana, alcohol. So sort of turning to those those strategies. And one of the things that we noticed that was reported is this overlap in the PACE data is that uh, students were reporting if they had a moderate depressive symptom, 16% had used alcohol and 9% had used marijuana in the past month. And among students reporting high depressive symptoms, the numbers increased to 27% with alcohol use and 15% using marijuana in the last month. And we're often asked, well, are they using it because they had the mental health problem or did the substance use create the mental health experiences? And I know we've all, Sarah, I know we've talked about this a lot in that cycle and sort of the muddiness 
of that question and how much time do we spend on teasing out which came first and how much time do we spend with the reality that it's happening and that students are using substances. So if we could kind of talk a little bit about, you know, why it's really important to look at the co-occurrence and not looking at mental health and substance use in separate boxes, but that in some students' lives, they're happening together. So I don't know, Sarah, are you or Brian want to take that one first? Um, Go ahead, Brian. Sure. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that, and that's, that's a great point, you know, teasing out and the co co-occurring um, diagnoses we it's it takes a nice clinical interview usually to do that and some family history etc uh, but one way or the other we need to address both um, we've over the last X number of decades probably we've gotten a whole lot better at at a marriage between the mental health system, and the drug and alcohol system, you know, X number of years ago, they didn't really talk to one another, so to speak. So I think that that's come a long, long way um, in our in those two separate fields for adolescents or for kids who are using, you know, developmentally, just neurobiologically, that's extremely uh, dangerous and impactful. You know, brains are still developing. And so when you start to impair and interfere with that uh, brain development, then then we have you know big concerns. And the longer that goes on, obviously, uh, the more impact that it can have. Um, and additionally, when you then toss in the you know the component of you know what what's the family history of addiction, we're looking at certainly another level of of um, concern because it. Substance use at that young age, um, and not to, you know, I, I hate to overstate situations lots of times, but it can, in fact, derail a person's development and, and life. You know, that use at 14, 15, 16 can still have consequences uh, at 26, 36, or 46. So, you know, there are lots of factors that go into, uh, you know, being concerned about it, that, you know, and, and one of them is just developmentally and neurobiologically, the impact that substances have on, on young kids' brains, which are still developing. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything that Brian shared. I mean, and I similarly have sort of observed the, the field evolve to sort of a better understanding and a greater awareness to the fact that mental health and substance abuse um, are so closely connected. So at least like you said, I, I think earlier in the field, they were like totally separate entities. Mm -hmm. um, and the two never really crossed and it, it really was not very helpful <laughs> in some instances. Um, so certainly I think over the years, the field has come closer together. And I think it does sort of take, you know, people with strong clinical skills to be able to try and pull those pieces apart. Um, it's not an easy thing to unpack by any means. Um, I think I also come back to, it also kind of coincides with that whole conversation about emotional regulation and self-regulation. And to be truthful, like I sat in a conversation yeah. earlier today about eating disorders, which is a topic we'll, we'll discuss at another time. But, you know, we were talking about similarly the comorbidity of eating disorders and, and mental health and how often 
yeah. kids who are struggling with eating disorders are also struggling with depression and anxiety and symptoms of other things. Um, and, and I think this is part of what makes mental health so challenging because right. it is so complex. And then you add in the adolescent development um, and puberty and hormones and all that fun, which is just great. Right. Um, and it becomes a bit of a hot mess. But I think, you know, mm-hmm. and we've had other conversations with like Karen Foundation and I think of conversations we've had with Gretchen. Um, and I think the other piece that's really hugely significant is obviously like the substances that kids are using today. And we've talked at length about sort of, oh, yes. like it looks very different than it once did. So the impact that that's having on kids and their neurodevelopment um, and then a bit their ability to emotionally regulate, you know, that those are all really significant pieces that we need to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of time to unpack all of that. And it also takes yeah. a willingness to have conversations. And I say that because I know even for myself, like I've worked with treatment providers in the past, um, sometimes they can be working with a kid for a long time around depression and anxiety but have never gotten to the conversation about how much pot they're smoking. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think, well, right. And I feel that the students, uh, the adolescent, the individual themselves doesn't realize that the very thing they turn to, to help yep. is now the very thing that's just exasperated the anxiety, the not being able to sleep, the depression. It's, it's actually not helping. Mm-mm. Um, and I think that's very difficult for someone to understand. And of course, dealing with adolescence, it's hard for an adult to understand that piece of it. And that's, something. So think, yeah, that's oh, something. Good. Oh, sorry. Um, I it just, this just conversation just made me think, you know, in other venues, when I've been talking to parents and things and looking at their kids, their child might be using substances. It's always like, well, what's the root cause of why they're using? Is it just experimentation or their friends are, and it was a peer pressure environment Or is it that they're looking for external ways to regulate and cope with things because they don't have either the skills, the support, the tools, whatever it is to do it themselves internally. So it's like looking for that escape or that something outside of my body to quiet my mind or to escape and not have to think about this or I feel really down, this will bring me up. So I don't know, it's just an interesting thing how it all is so linked up. And especially like you both said with the developing brain, that just adds another layer on. But we know the younger a person starts to use substances and introduces it to their brain, the higher the chance that they will become dependent or develop substance use disorder later in life. So that is really why it's such a key time to pay attention to that. Absolutely. One, one quick thing that I would add, and you know, kind of, I think all three of you touched on it, uh, is that if if a family is seeking some sort of um, mental health service, I think it's always important to to find out the how comfortable to, to you know to Sarah's point uh, how comfortable and how knowledgeable that that clinician might be uh, in in dealing with substance use issues because it it really can't be ignored and and it oftentimes is so I think that that's part of maybe like sort of a mini screening process for. Uh, families or parents to use when, if that's a concern of theirs. Yeah. Well, and I think back to even, I think um, the session that we did do with Gretchen, one of the conversations that sort of started a life of its own and probably could be a session and of its own is, you know, then it just gets further muddied by the idea of if we have kids who are seeking mental health treatment who are on medication for mental health reasons, 
and then additionally are continuing to engage in substance abuse of whatever nature, um, are, are we having those conversations and where are we having those conversations? Because then that just sort of further complicates the picture. So switching gears, so thinking about mental health and substance use, something that also came out of this section of PAYS was a link between bullying, social media, and mental health. So when we looked at different stats, and again, I'll link all of these graphics and things up in the show notes, um, but of students that reported being bullied over social media or texting, 60% said they felt so sad or hopeless almost every day for at least two weeks in the last year that they stopped doing usual activities. So again, I'll link this up because that's a very specific data point with lots of pieces added to it. Um, for kids that reported skipping school for bullying fears in the past year, 76 reported this same feeling of sad and hopelessness, um, most days, uh, and stopping usual activities. So when we look at, cause I, I wanted to see, okay, well, let's look at the total pool of, of students that reported being bullied. And it's just under 20% in the district, um, in 2021, though it was higher in 2019 and 2017. So it was 28%, about 28% for both of those past years that we collected the PACE survey. So, you know, when you're stepping back and looking at this in layman's terms, so about one in four to one in five kids report being bullied. And of those kids, that impact seems to be very significant. So I guess my question to you all is, are you seeing this among students that you're working with? And what does that look like? What I can what I can say, if you don't mind me jumping in, Sarah, is this this year um, since so since August, mm -hmm. I've been asked to do a more, a few more uh, bullying trainings uh, than I had in the previous several years. Mm. So I think it's it's at least showing up on the radar more for educators, uh, which is which is a good thing that it's being addressed. Right. Um, so maybe seeing a little bit more of it. But that's that's it's also, a, you know, a difficult and in some cases a devastating impact on kids, you know, because you're talking about disconnection, you're talking about isolation, you're talking about loneliness, um, which, you know, we're, we're using the word loneliness and being lonely with high school seniors. Mm. And previous to this, we've only or we've primarily used that word that with seniors, se mm. with senior citizens. And, and now we're using it with seniors in high school mm. at a time when historically, you know, kind of traditionally we thought this is like one of the most social times of a person's life. Um, and now we're using terms like disconnected and isolated and, and lonely and loneliness. Um, so that's going to have that depressive uh, result. Mm. That's a really good point. I've never thought of it that way, but that is, those are the words. Like I've seen other programs too, that is like that talk. That's what they're titled is just like the tech balance, tech and life and, and how to deal with, it's like, you can be, you have the potential to be so connected at all times, right. With our computers in our pockets, but yet it doesn't replace being with people, being present with people, you know, and I, and it's, it's interesting if I guess the image that just popped into my mind was like, you see a group of kids all sitting together somewhere, but they're all in person sitting together, but then they're all just staring at their phones. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. the phones, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And families do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You see it in restaurants. Yep. I mean, that, multiple that, places. 
that that's creeped into our culture. I think, yep. I think mm-hmm. whatever, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, um, if you were in a, in a restaurant and I don't think that was nearly as often, you know, like we didn't, and, and I'll, you know, there was some judgment behind it. Like, look, they're on sure. their phone and now it's common. It's a, it's commonplace. So I think that that's one of those things that has, you know, sort of creeped into um, just the way we interact with or don't interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it does create this conflict. As Chrissy just said, uh, you, you're interacting with people, uh, this loneliness factor, this whole loneliness experience. How, how does that happen? If, we're constantly, you know, on the phones and communicating and mm-hmm. talking, but yet the loneliness—it's not the same. Mm-hmm. And how do you impress upon kids, right? Families. I do always think, from like a behavioral side, it's interesting, and that we're probably all guilty of this. You know, like if you're sitting somewhere in public and somebody, like maybe you're not engaging with people, but somebody else picks up their phone and then like. Oh. It's so easy to like pick so, up your phone and all of a sudden you're on your phone and you're like, I didn't even need to be on my phone. I know. Uh, I know. Like social modeling mm-hmm. uh, yes. is, is yes. comical, but I guess um, I believe one of the stats you started to reference indicated that there actually has been a little bit of a decrease in the, in the bullying reports since this like post, like most recent reporting case yeah. year versus previous. Mm-hmm. And there is a piece of me that does actually wonder if in this instance, this, this is where the pandemic is kind of showing itself. Yeah. The fact that for that, for some of that time, kids were still not necessarily in person uh, or engaging in daily activities the way that they have been known to pre pandemic. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure if, if that's a place where the pandemic kind of skews the data a little bit. Yeah. I would to say with respect to sort of my experience and, and what I also encounter with some of my team, I, I feel like a lot of conversations come up in regards to peer interactions. And I'll be honest with you, I, I probably, again, there's like a developmental piece in terms of where I think I hear the term bullying being used and, and certainly much more so at our lower grade levels than our, our higher end grade levels. And I think, you know, at the high schools, what I often hear about is, is peer interactions um, and still social connectedness, but also um, relationships. And I, I think I'm sensitive to the fact that obviously instances of bullying can have a really profound impact on a student's emotional well-being. Um, but there's also an element where I think at the high school in particular, there kind of becomes a dialogue around like our, our perception and I think about conversations I've had with kids where, you know, maybe a student will think another kid is looking at them a certain way. And you'll be like, well, why, why do you think that? And, and they will have built up a whole narrative in their mind as to why they think this. Mm-hmm. And then when you try and like kind of push against some of that narrative or ask them some more specific questions, like, well, is this a student, you know, well, no, is this a student you've ever had interactions with? Well, no. Is it possible that the student was just actually looking in your direction? Well, maybe. Um, And so I think some of what also gets hard during adolescence is like we're kind of stuck in that developmental place where it's like all about me. Oh, yes. This idea that everyone around me is being as critical of me as I am critical of me. Um, And that's not always the case. now, obviously, you know, that requires a lot of conversation and kind of unpacking to be able to have those conversations. 
but mm-hmm. I, I am cognizant of those pieces too, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think about some of the conversations we've had where um, in a school setting, and we've heard from some folks that think, and I totally understand where this is coming from, that students overreact or everything is bullying. So it's, again, definition. It's an operational definition. What What is it? And, again, do we even define it? Because it might be different for everybody, how they experience what bullying is. And that sometimes we feel that the sensitivity meter has swung way too far for responding to everything. Just like you said, Sarah, somebody just looking your direction doesn't qualify the same as someone texting inappropriate thing or hate speech or whatever it might be that we would be like, oh, that's bullying. So we also have this spectrum of bullying now that people are like, oh my gosh, do I have to respond to everything? Is it all bullying? And is it all raised to the level of a response needed? And is it, but again, for that student, it feels like bullying. It looks like bullying and it's impacting their mental health, their ability to come to school their ability to, to fully engage in a school setting than it is for them. But I also think we're in that world a little bit too, where the response to this bullying thing is sometimes sort of complicated. I don't have an answer mm-hmm. for that one. It's, it's interesting though, to hear Brian share that he's had more requests for training on this. Topic. Yes. On one hand is like yes. cool to hear in terms mm-hmm. of people requesting based on probably a need. But then I also think back to, you know, I can remember years ago when we were trained in Alveus um, and what that landscape looked like then. And then I will be honest with you, like for years at Downingtown East, we had a peer mediation program, which actually unfortunately has gone by the wayside. Um, Mm -hmm. I I do think there are elements of bullying prevention from my perspective that have gotten pulled into other elements of our support structures. And like, I look at PBIS yes. and our, our PBIS programs and plans. Say what PBIS um, is for people that don't know what that means. Positive behavioral intervention systems. Okay. So like a lot of times when you walk into our sure. elementary schools and you see posters on the side are like on the walls yeah. and they have like maybe an acronym and like, this is what it means to be a good student in this building. It's like, be responsible, be respectful, be yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot of messaging around that, but then there's also instruction that coincides with that. And, and there's places where we talk about what it means to be a respectful citizen in our mm-hmm. school. Um, and, and with that, I think also comes along sort of that, that bystander training piece of like, yes, serve other yes. people being unkind to one mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. What can you as a student do to try and sort of support your friends? Um, so, I mean, I do think we've come a long way. In Absolutely. Effort, but it's still a work in progress. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And social emotional learning, the programs that are in there, that's, and, and it's built into that because that is bullying prevention also. So I think you're right, Sarah. I mean, there's definitely, it has definitely changed the landscape around bullying and how we respond. But it is interesting because to, to Brian's point, we, we're still seeing this, um, even though it has decreased in our school district in Downingtown School District, there's still a need because obviously the request for help is still there for parents and for professionals. I just wonder too, with kids with phones, if they might be reported being bullied because people are able to access each other so directly and in secret. So it's not like, oh, my one friend, Sally, every day 
Tommy bothers her. Every single day, he is so awful to her, and I observe it outwardly happening in real life. Whereas now, Tommy can send nasty text messages or embarrassing social media posts, and I might never see it, or I'll see it in the feed and, you know, the internet, social media land, right? But I feel like that's a piece of this as well, where kids have direct access to each other through their phones, where... You know, the same with where, well, how did you call someone to go out and play? You'd go knock on their door or you'd call them on the phone on their kitchen phone in the middle of the house where a parent could hear, either answer the phone themselves or hear like, oh, Sally's on the phone. Tommy wants to go play. That's what they're doing and have a sense. But now all of those, you know, pieces are taken out and I can't help but ignore that, how that could be related to these things. And maybe that's also why you're getting more requests for training because, you know, people are taken out of it and have more direct secretive, not, I don't, secretive is not the right word, but do you know what I mean? Like where things can happen that aren't necessarily observed in a public environment mm-hmm. or forum right. where other people can say, Hey, don't talk to that person like that. Or, Hey, you shouldn't, you know? So I just think that's a piece of it. Probably could be a whole nother podcast episode all about that by itself. Um, sure. I was going to say, and I'll be very quick. Um, yes. I don't have the data for it, but I will say like we do get safe to save reports where basically yeah. students will make a safe to say tip. And it, it's along the lines of students perhaps and their behavior towards their peers. And, and typically the person who's making the tip is, is trying to be an advocate and say yes. like, hey, I've observed this or I've seen this happen maybe during an unstructured lunch or something like that. Um, and obviously a lot of that gets directed to administrators as well as counselors, but I, I do see those coming in. Nice. Sure. And that's a great resource too, to have, cause Absolutely. I, didn't, I didn't have that when I was in high school. Um, but okay. So when we get back though, so now that we have all this information and in the stats and we've, we've chatted about it, we want to figure out, okay, what do we do with this information? So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, Brian is going to be chatting with us and explaining and sharing some awesome specific tips on what to do. So we'll be right back. If you're enjoying our podcast, an easy way to support parent to parent is by sharing it with a friend. You can send it to them in a text from your phone or even better post an episode you liked on social media. Maybe it's this one. Our goal is to increase education and awareness among parents. And as we always say, you don't know what you don't know. And some people may not know we are out there. Any shout outs and sharing is appreciated. Thanks, and let's get back to our conversation. We are back, and Brian, um, when we were preparing for this episode, uh, as, as we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, we always like to have these, these take action steps and resources and real tangible things that our listeners um, can be sharing in their, with their family. And so what we'd like to do now is, um, is talk about the seven C's of resilience. And if you could explain a little bit more about that and what that means and what that might look like for families. Sure. Sure. So the, the seven C's, uh, really the work of Dr. Kenneth Ginsburg, and it has to do with, you know, developing resilience in kids. And I, I like this, I like the seven C's for a few different reasons. Um, they can, be used at all developmental levels. So it's not, oh, this works best with a five to nine year old or a 13 to 17 year old. It's it's across the board. Um, so all developmental levels, they're not in order. You know, it, it's kind of, these are built into life. And that's the other thing that I really like about them. They're, I think, very practical, usable um, approaches, interventions that, you know, parents use uh, when we're dealing with life on life's terms. So 
there isn't anything super clinical about them. There isn't anything, um, you know, all that deeply psychological about them. That if parents are doing a pretty good job of parenting, they're already doing the, a lot of these things. They may just not have the, uh, you know, the language or look at it in this way. So, uh, you know, the first one is competence, you know, developing, helping our, our kids develop that sense of competence and feeling that, hey, I can do this. I can handle this situation effectively. Um, and I think it's important in order to do that, like we said a little bit earlier, that kids, um, you know, that's a behavioral thing. Like I might struggle with this a little bit, but I can get through it. And as a result, when I come out the other end of whatever situation this is, um, I can feel competent. I can feel like, hey, I got this. I can do this. Uh, the next one is confidence. So real similar, right? Um, and that's just believing in our abilities. But I also think that that's believing in our abilities because we've done something. Not because something someone has told us that we're wonderful, right? Not because someone has praised us, uh, but because we've done something and internally, you know, we feel that sense of confidence, like, Hey, I, I, I got this. Um, so it's again, something that parents can support and, and kids can, can emerge from a situation that they've managed and they can feel confident in that. Um, the other, and this has been a, I think a prevailing theme since we've signed on is connection. Mm. So, we know that close ties um, create safety and security, and that's important. So, you know, when someone feels disconnected, it's an awful feeling. And when we say, you know, it can feel lonely, it can feel sad. Um, so feeling that connection with our kids, you know, our, our, st our students um, or our own children, super important. And so, Again, they're built in moments uh, in day-to-day -day living. That might be making sure that you have X number of meals together in the course of the week. That might be making sure that when uh, you're driving from, from school to, to practice or driving your, your child from school to practice, whatever it might be, that the conversation is intentional and it's not distracted. So phones are down. Radios are down, maybe listening to some music, but having that conversation. Um, so that connection, I think, is is a vital part of developing resiliency because that's where trust comes from. That's where we, we can go back to that adult. That's where we can go back to that parent. And, you know, there's a forum to be able to to talk about some tough stuff. And Sarah mentioned, you know, having those difficult conversations a few times. Well, this is all part of laying the groundwork to have those difficult conversations. You know, I, I believe in the old saying, you prepare for war in times of peace. Mm. And so the time to step into the first difficult conversation is not when that first difficult conversation is needed, right? right. It goes a little bit easier, a little bit more smoothly if we've had that relationship and that connection. Uh, character, character as, as, you know, kind of the fourth C, um, developing a set of morals and values in, in our kids, in our children, um, by really, again, we go back to doing, uh, and, and I think the big one here is modeling, you know, what do parents do, um, when no one's looking, you know, when only their, only their family might know what's going on. Um, so, 
you know, modeling, I think, is still our biggest teaching tool. It's our biggest teaching tool in schools. It's certainly our biggest teaching tool in families. And when we talk about kids as sponges, you know, typically we think about, you know, very, very young kids. But teens are right there as sponges, too, right? Like, only they let us know about it if if we mess up. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that character, um, doing the right thing when, when no one is looking and setting that example. Um, the next one, the next C is uh, contribution. So all too often, I think we try, I know in the educational world, we, we maybe sometimes too often try to do too much for students. And certainly in, in, in families, I think the trend over the last X number of years uh, has been to do a lot for our kids. We live in a very kid-centric kind of world. Yes. Um, and, I, c- and I could so, use some more contributing. Yeah. Brian. Yeah. So, to, you know, <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> yeah. To contribute, however that might look. I mean, everybody has different opportunities to contribute. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. And this, this wasn't in my family. This was at, at a school where I was the, um, the teachers used to do a, a winter break party every year. And so this, so, and this was a tradition, like kids were always, it was um, at the child and career development center. And so it was a neat thing that happened. It was for uh, high school students, basically. So this particular uh, group of, of kids would have every year, the, the couple teachers, the team of teachers would put on a winter party. And for, a number of years, the teachers would bring everything, you know, the, the, all of the treats, all of the food, et cetera. And then some, someone said, well, why don't we have the students who can contribute, mm-hmm. bring something. Mm-hmm. And so that's what was worked out. And if a student couldn't contribute completely fine and no, and no one had to know that. Right. So, so one time um, it was, it was actually like October um, the party wasn't until December, but the student comes up to me and he says, Mr. McGinley, are you going to the winter party? And I said, Hey, listen, my man, I, I'm a good school counselor. I know where all the parties are in the school and I go to all of them. And he's like, great. And he said, I'm bringing the soda. Aww. Yeah. And I said, really? He said, yep, I'm going to bring the soda. I said, you know what? I'll be there. I'll be there. Now I knew, I knew that this student could not contribute the soda. I knew that he, his family really, really struggled uh, financially. He couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. What I later found out, and I know we overuse the word literally in our world, but yeah. he literally scraped together dimes and quarters to save enough money to buy a two liter bottle of soda Aww. for that party. So. I walk into the, the classroom and it has a kind of a front door and a back door. He's at the back door where all the food is set up. I walk in the front door. He sees me, makes a beeline for me. And he, he literally grabs me by the shirt and says, come on, it's back here. My soda is back here and pours the soda for me Aww. and says, here, this is mine. I bought this. There is no better example of contribution, you know, than that i don't you know that that was what it was all about so you know we can't undervalue the importance of of contribution Mm -hmm. so that's that's one of the the seven c's 
Um, the next one is coping. So, and again, that's been one of, one of our prevailing themes since we've, since we've signed on, um, you know, and again, this goes back to helping kids, not just develop cognitive coping skills, which is where we, I think very often go when we think about, you know, developing coping skills and coping strategies. Um, so that that's definitely part of it, but, um, also that, regulation that self-regulation that you know we all talked about already and that you guys it sounds like have talked about extensively before so you know being able to cope with life on life's terms not protecting our kids from situations but really having them being able to manage realistically and developmentally appropriately right um situations that come their way that yes you're a high school student in an ap class you might not get an a on every every test that's you know, something that we can help you cope with, not complain about you getting, you know, a B. So I think coping uh, is important. And then finally, control, um, which I really look at as agency. I, I think Ginsburg probably put control in there because it's a C. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but um, you know, looking at agency and and kids being able to make their own decisions and having input in again, as developmentally appropriate, having, you know, input into the decisions that they need to make about wherever they are, whether that's, you know, a fifth grader or, or an 11th grader. So they're the, the seven C's. Uh, so we had competence and confidence and connection and character, uh, contribution, coping and control. And I think that if you know, if we just live kind of life on life's terms and as parents, mm-hmm. um, there are countless opportunities in the course of, you know, days, weeks, or years where we can teach those. And they're not one, they're not one lesson books, right? We yeah. keep going back and revisiting those. So um, I, I think they're nice, practical little, it's a nice, practical little package of an approach. Uh, like I said, not, not clinical, mm-hmm. uh, but, but life on life's terms. Yeah. I like that. You keep saying life on life's terms. I like that in those seven seasons. And I'll link those in the show notes. I'll find something to link up so that we can have those in there too. Um, the other thing that we talked about as our last thing quick before we go um, sure. is we, in prepping this, you know, I know that you have some specific items and kind of easy to do things or things that parents might already be doing um, to help them monitor their kids' mental health. Can you share those with us? Sure. And again, these, these are things like you, like you just said, these are things that parents not only do, sometimes they kind of like perseverate on, but they're all things that parents are, you know, good parents are usually highly attuned to again, not, not clinical. Um, So, but these are six areas. So other than physical health, these are six areas of, I think, pretty big concern um, and very diagnostic, very telling uh, for parents, uh, if you know, just in monitoring their monitoring their children. So, first one is um, is their child sleeping? Kind of like the Goldilocks and Three Bears, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is their child sleeping? We're all very attuned as parents, right? To are they sleeping too much? Are they not sleeping enough? Is their sleep disturbed? Um, something, you know, really really easy. Um, to, to monitor. And again, you know, parents are very, 
attuned to it. And I always say that if someone said, Brian, you can ask three questions to sort of, you know, quickly diagnose someone. Um, I would, one of the questions I would ask is about sleep. There's no doubt about that. That's a very, very telling kind of behavior. So is their child sleeping? Um, is their child eating? So are they eating too much? Are they eating too little? Uh, are they not eating well? Are they eating healthy? Are they, you know, are they not eating healthy? Again, most families, uh, if you're eating a meal together, the the uh, parent or parents at the table are attuned to how that young kid uh, is eating, you know. And so, I mean, that's a longstanding cultural tradition, right? We're, we're paying attention to what our kids eat. So is their child eating? Um, is their child doing okay academically? And one time I said this, and, and one of the parents said, Brian, we're in Chester County. They can't be doing okay. They've got to be doing really well. And I thought, well, it's another, <laughs> are they doing okay? That's, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, because there are certain issues that come with doing really well sometimes, and there are certain issues that come with not doing well at all. So are they doing okay academically? Um, the, the fourth one I think is really telling, and we can kind of, again, this is something that as a, as a child develops, uh, becomes less and less in the, in parental control. So is their child making and keeping friends who are good for them, Mm. not just making and keeping friends, but are they making and keeping friends who are good for them? Uh, and again, that's, that's an age old concern with parents. Like conversationally that will be happening a thousand times in Chester County tonight. Well, they have a couple friends, but I, I don't know how good they are for them or gee, they met a few people and oh my gosh, they, they just click so well and they have fun and it's, it's neat to hear kind of stuff. So, you know, are they, are they making friends and keeping friends who are good for them? Um, the fifth one is, is their child using sub going back to what we've already talked about, right? Is their child using substance substances or doing other dangerous or risky, illegal, unhealthy behaviors, you know, and that might be self-injurious behaviors that may just be risk-taking behaviors that are dangerous or that are illegal. But again, I think that parents have been long been on top of these kinds of things. Um, And then finally, for number six, you know, kind of when the smoke clears and the dust settles, the bottom line is, is their child happy? Right. Like ultimately, is their child happy? Can can the adults in that child's life look around and say, you know, they're doing OK. They're, they're generally pretty happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, and, and that's, you know, that's one thing that, um, again, I think parents and adults in, in kids lives look at one another and, and look at that child and and want that child to be happy. Ultimately, that's. Usually the goal, you know, the old saying is, I don't really care what you do for a living as long as you're happy doing it. Mm. Um, so they're, they're the six, um, I think they're the six parental concerns other than physical health, like I said, that parents uh, are concerned about and can really glean a lot of information from. And if they have concerns about any of those, that's where 
I think, you know, to, to all of our points and Sarah brought it up a couple of times, you know, um, you go back and you have those, those conversations and you go back to, I believe in like going back to basics, mm-hmm. um, you know, not swimming out further than you can swim back kind of idea, like go back to basics. Let's get back on track. What, what works for us as a family. And then if those things don't work, if your typical sort of, um, you know, if you if the things that have typically been okay for you, the things that have typically worked for you as strategies and interventions, you know, on a family level, if that stops working for you, then I think, and, and Sarah, you can jump in on this. I think that's where you, that's where you seek another level of care. Like that's where you may want to talk to a counselor or uh, seek some more help, but you know, we can try those things internally first. Yeah. Hope those make sense. It does, oh, I love those. I think they're great. I'm going to put them all in the show notes and then link them up as well. But that's just, I'm going to make a little list for myself to look at for those seven C's too. It's just simple, simple things that you can yeah. integrate into day to day. I agree with everything that Brian said and, and shared. And I appreciate um, all of that. I think they're great reminders. Um, and, and I think the simplicity is, is part of the beauty in that. So, and, and similarly to sort of pick up on your last point, you know, if at some point um, you're finding that you need help outside your family, you know, we're, we are fortunate, even though sometimes it's hard to get access to mental health care just because of wait lists, which I'm aware of, we're all aware of it. Um, we are pretty fortunate, I would say, within our schools, obviously, our school counselors, our prevention specialists, um, I would add our school psychologists, there's a whole host of staff through pupil services. Um, and SAP teams that want to be available for kids who are struggling. Um, And then obviously outside of sort of the school district, there's a whole world of treatment providers and community resources um, that we try and stay connected with and and obviously try and help families to work with too, if that's what's needed. Yeah, this is great. Thank you both so much for joining us again for our part two. Um, and I should have said this at the very beginning. I'll link up part one that we did the episode, the last episode that we did in the show notes. So thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with us. There's a lot of great tips in here. So thank you. Great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Christy. Thanks, Brian. Sure. And thank you to listeners for joining us today. Um, you will find information and links to everything we talked about in the show notes. And you can also follow me, Chrissy, on Instagram and Facebook to see more information related to the podcast, other resources, and our parent-to-parent blog that will be linked up to. So if you haven't already, be sure to click subscribe or follow in your podcast app so you can stay up to date with our latest episodes. And if you're liking our pod, please, we would love it if you would share it with somebody, send it to a friend, post about it on social media, any help and getting other parents to find us is greatly appreciated. So we will talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye.